in-office studios of his eye care practices in Nashville, Tennessee. It's As I See It with Dr. Jeff Kegaris, your source for eye care education and receiving the type of patient relationship you deserve. It is time for a patient revolution. And now, your host, Dr. Jeff Kegaris. Welcome to As I See It. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Kegaris. Today, we want to round out a little bit of COVID discussion. One year ago today, we heard from Dr. Kristen Kegaris, an Indianapolis emergency doctor with the same last name, by the way, about her experiences <laughs> with COVID in the ER. It, it's uh, now a year later, and we still have some questions. Things have changed. So we thought we'd circle back with Dr. Kristen and find out from somebody directly on the front lines what COVID looks like in the ER today. So, Dr. Keg, Kristen, thank you for joining us on As I See It. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So let's get right to it. How would you compare what we're fighting in COVID now versus what we were seeing a year ago from your perspective? Fortunately, overall, things have significantly improved from my perspective. Um, Our numbers seem to be far less. I think there's also just a sense of peace and calm because we actually understand a little bit more about this virus, whereas a year ago it was a brand new virus and we kept hearing from the media about all these bad cases that were going on internationally and were likely to be coming over here to America. And so we were doing a lot of prep work in the ER. Um, My directors were in prepping for lots of cases so the hospital wouldn't be overrun. And um, and good news a year later, it seems like our numbers have been declining and the number of COVID cases that are actually we're seeing in the ER and actually admitting are far less. So you cover a number of, of emergency medicine departments at hospitals in central Indiana. Were you ever overrun over the last year with COVID cases? In other words, difficulty to difficult uh, getting somebody into a hospital or you know For, lining people up in the halls and so fortunately, no, we did not experience that. We were prepped um, at multiple hospitals as I work at a very large hospital, but then also work at um, multiple other smaller hospitals. Unfortunately, none of them were overrun. Now we had days where we were seeing COVID after COVID. Um, and that was very tiring, but there was never a day that I didn't feel like I could get a patient into the hospital if I needed to. So you think some of the, maybe the more certainty that we know what we're dealing with now to a better degree, we know how we want to treat these people, how they're going to present as opposed Mm -hmm. to the uncertainty of a year ago of, oh, yikes, what about this? What about that? What should we be using and what should we do and not do? Is that, is that a, a big change over this last year? Yes, definitely. And it's continuously evolving, too. I mean, it's science. Nothing is certain and nothing is static. It's always going to be a dynamic process of trying to get better and better. I think the big exciting thing is this new vaccine, um, multiple vaccines, should I say, that are coming out. And I know myself and multiple of my partners, we have all been vaccinated. And that even in itself is a very new type of vaccine for us. Um, but I think as far as the treatment of COVID overall has, we have a process now of 
when to give oxygen, when to give steroids, when to give certain type of medications, uh, when to intubate people, more of a process of knowing how to treat people. Whereas a year ago, that was still in kind of more of the experimental phase. Gotcha. More of evidence-based medicine based upon a number of cases at this mm-hmm. point. So you mentioned that you're not seeing as many cases. Am I correct in that? In the in correct. Your, okay. Of of the cases you're seeing, though, are any of those more virulent? In other words, of the people you're seeing, are you having to admit more people? Because we certainly hear in the media about you know, these, oh my gosh, you got this California variant, the South African variant and all of that. Or mm-hmm. would you would you say in general, it's pretty much what you've been dealing with for the last six months? Um, so in the past month, I would say it's gotten a lot better, it seems. There was a little flux, I would say, in the past three months. There was, all of a sudden, I felt like we were seeing a lot more COVID patients and they were very sick. And I was admitting a lot of them, but I would say in the past month, I don't feel that is the case. And I feel if somebody is coming in with cough, congestion, fevers, they're actually more than likely not coming back positive for COVID. So, okay. and it's more of some other viral illness or it happens to be pneumonia or some other cause at this point. I mean, we still are seeing COVID. That's, I'm not saying that's not happening. It just doesn't seem as prevalent to me personally. So if I come into the ER or when somebody comes into the ER with those symptoms you described, are you still testing them for COVID routinely? Yes, I would say overall, yes. If somebody is symptomatic, if they have enough symptoms that make us worried, could this be COVID? Or if they live with somebody who is high risk or they themselves are high risk, absolutely, we're testing them. So what if they say, oh, it can't be that. I've, I've had the vaccines. Um, that's a good question. I think those are still questions we're trying to figure out. And if they're symptomatic enough, I would still test them for certain viruses. Even some people I've tested for the flu and I've only had one positive flu result, Mm -hmm. um, this whole year and I haven't tested it too often. Um, but there can be also multiple other causes of people having cough, congestion, fevers as well. And it's not just COVID. So one of the things that's the most concern that we have obviously gotcha and so i think people need to understand too and because so this is sometimes lost when you think about the emergency room like oh all these people are there and they just treat me like like everybody but that's very much not the case just like we wrote the book and we do here you treat patients one patient at a time everybody has a different they may have a similar diagnosis but they have different presenting symptoms and they have different presenting comorbidities don't they absolutely and that's going to really dictate a lot about how you how you may treat somebody. So um, mm-hmm. when when you test for COVID and you send that off to get your report back, correct? Because you're not looking at that immediately. Somebody in the lab is doing that. Uh, and, you get, and you get that report back. Does it just say COVID positive, COVID negative? Does it give you these alternative strains? I'm, I'm kind of wondering, how do we know what strain somebody even has? Or is that something that so, somebody does in research later on? So the test that we have, we have a rapid test, and that's specifically testing for this novel COVID-19 virus. But then we also have um, a respiratory panel, and that's a little bit different, and that shows us multitude of different viruses that we test for. Um, and then we have other send-off tests that are specifically PCR tests for just COVID-19. 
Okay. So when you're testing for COVID and you're, I take it that's a blood test or is that a nasal swab that you're sending? Nasal off? swab. Okay. So when you're sending that back and you get a report back, you're not, it's not just a COVID yes or no. It's a whole host of potential other things that could be causing the symptoms somebody's having, correct? Uh, no, it depends on the test. Oh, okay. So depends on what you order? Specifically, correct. But more than likely at this point, if we're sending off a COVID test or a nasal swab, it's specifically testing for COVID-19. Okay. Okay. So some people are reporting after they've had, because we have more and more people that have had one of the vaccines now, and particularly mm-hmm. with the the vaccines we're more familiar with, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, people are reporting after the second vaccine, some flu-like symptoms all the way from, I didn't have any symptoms the next day to, oh my gosh, I felt like a truck hit me. Uh, are, mm-hmm. are those things that we, well, first of all, that's not COVID virus activated, correct? Well, that's your body making an immune response to the vaccination against COVID. So, yes. Okay. So, do if that's severe, do people need to come to the ER for that? Or is that so self-limited that they uh, basically just need to hydrate, rest, and it's not going to last long? I would say for the majority of the population, they just need to rest at home and treat it just like any other virus with um, good fever medication reducers, Tylenol, ibuprofen, whatever you can take personally, um, and good plenty of fluids, taking care of yourself at home, and it should it should resolve within the next couple of days. I've had some patients, particularly I would say elderly patients, those older than 70, who are coming in and some of them feel very dehydrated because they do get quite a bit of loose stools or they're spiking fevers at home, having some difficulty breathing. So in some rare instances, I will say we have admitted people just to watch them overnight. Um, and some people have had other side effects from the vaccine, like palpitations, um, some chest pain. But again, I think that's it's, it's very personal. It's just very patient dependent on how they react to a vaccine. But overall, nothing I personally have taken care of that is too severe. Gotcha. That's that's good and that's reassuring. So when mm-hmm. um, when should somebody not not a vaccinated person, let's say, or let's just say somebody thinks they have COVID and they're having symptoms, when should they say, I need to go to the ER rather than managing this at home? Or more particularly, when should a son or a daughter or brother or sister say, I need to get my my spouse, my sibling, my mom or dad over to the ER because this is uh, not something that we should be treating at home? What symptoms? Yeah, I would say in general, this goes just for any emergency symptoms because not just with COVID, but if somebody's having a true difficulty breathing, can't even speak a couple words, or getting very confused, um, those are signs of you need to come to the emergency room immediately, no matter what. Um, and then during this time of our life, we obviously always think COVID, but there could be also other causes of somebody having these symptoms as well that we physicians need to figure out what is going on yeah there was a point in time where where again when people really didn't know the fear of the unknown uh, a lot of people were saying i'm not going to the er i might get covid right do you do you Mm -hmm. sense that that fear has dissipated now 
Um, I would say it's still present and I still hear it from a lot of patients and Hmm. family members who are bringing people into the ER um, as there's a fear for sure that's still there. I think um, this vaccine though is helping to decrease those fears for sure, which is great. Um, But people are still very concerned about coming into the hospital. But I think people also understand the importance of coming to the hospital because Initially, a year ago, we were people were avoiding coming to the hospital for heart attacks, strokes, and a lot of those serious illnesses were myths that we could have treated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I can tell you, even from an outpatient basis here, that I would say that the general population of patients that we see are much more comfortable now. Obviously, some all the way to. Um, they've got COVID fatigue and they want this whole thing to just end yesterday. Mm-hmm. But even, uh, you know, we still maintain and want to reassure people that this would be the safest place that they could go if they had to be out of the house. On the other hand, more mm-hmm. I, I sense more and more people are more comfortable with that, not as concerned or afraid about being out in public or out at a doctor's office, et cetera. They start starting to get back to a little more of their routine life. The other thing mm-hmm. is we're, you know, we hear reports of, um, conjunctivitis, what we call conjunctivitis, or uh, other inflammatory disorders associated with COVID. Unfortunately, we've seen very few, if any, here in Middle Tennessee. They can occur, but they're all have been mostly self-limited. Nothing that we have personally treated at either of our offices that are really serious. So that's all. That's all good news too. And part of mm-hmm. that is that if you arrest the underlying virus and treat it well then the other organs generally do a lot better, don't they? Including the eyes. Correct. Correct. uh, Hey, we're going to take a little bit of a short break because I want to remind people about the importance of having their regular comprehensive eye health and vision exam. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about COVID and the ER. We're talking with Dr. Kristen Kegris, who's an emergency room physician in central Indiana. This is As I See It. As I See It. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Jeff Kegaris with Cool Springs and Donaldson Eye Care. We've proudly served the Middle Tennessee community for the last 26 years, and I want you to know we really appreciate you. Having an annual comprehensive eye health and vision exam is so important to the health of your eyes. From signs of diabetes, glaucoma, and cataracts, we're looking for it all. Don't let another day go by. Schedule your annual eye health and vision exam at Cool Springs or Donaldson Eye Care. And now, back to As I See It. All right. So, Kristen, thanks for hanging on there while we pay the bills and and make sure that we are emphasizing the importance of eye exams for for people, uh, eye health and vision exams. Uh, When somebody goes to the emergency room now, in some cases, they are more severe and they are intubated. We hear that word. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what intubation is? Intubation. So if somebody is intubated, it means they are on a breathing machine. means we are artificially breathing for them. And what that involves is putting a plastic tube down into their trachea to help breathe for them. So that doesn't sound like something you really want to have happen, but it's a life-saving maneuver and an important thing to have happen if you're in that situation, correct? Correct. Correct. So what can happen to the person if, let's say, that you you didn't intubate them? Uh, mm-hmm. what, what are the, what are the concerns? I mean, there obviously is a reason to intubate, to, to help them breathe. 
mm-hmm. above and beyond their own. If people get low on oxygen, what are some of those signs or symptoms that they might exhibit? So there are a variety of reasons that we have to intubate patients in the emergency room. But the primary issue is that somebody needs a breathing tube. It's because they, we have fears that they are not going to be able to continue to breathe on their own very well. And if you're not able to breathe on your own very well, your heart could stop. And so that's the big realm of why we mm-hmm. want to breathe for them. Um, but there can be also other reasons as well, um, which I won't necessarily elaborate. But um, the main issue is if somebody is coming in mainly with difficulty breathing, confusion, um, can't even wake up enough to breathe on their own, those are main reasons that we are putting a breathing tube down somebody and putting them on the breathing machine. So if, if somebody's oxygen level drops enough, then it, does it start to affect kind of the acid and base balance in the body? Is that mm-hmm. part of the reason yep. for confusion? I'm thinking back on my pH testing in chemistry and in biology and high school and all those good things like that. So I think everybody can relate to that, that we have a normal kind of balance in the body, what we call mm-hmm. homeostasis. And, and that, Absolutely. that that's kept in line. And with other diseases, that can get out of whack, right? We can, mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. have high acidity or high alkalinity. And so that's what you're talking about. If that gets out of whack, that oftentimes can cause confusion as the presenting symptom, correct? Correct. And we also see that with uh, UTIs a lot in the elderly where they get confused and um, well, they will get confused, but mm-hmm. not necessarily have to be on the breathing machine. Right. It right. takes a very sick person to have to be on a breathing machine. Okay. Gotcha. So but with UTIs, when people get confused, is that also potentially a pH balance issue or can it be for other reasons? It, dep- it depends on the severity. Again, with any illness, you have a wide variety of, a spectrum of severity so mm-hmm. um it just varies quite a bit so i think so, but yes it depends on has the infection gotten in their bloodstream um overall how is it affecting them gotcha I, you know i think this is important because i think in general and i've become you know in in helping manage my mom uh and mm-hmm. other elderly patients that that uh, confusion is a big worry. You know, it can't just be, oh, well, you know, she's older. I mean, there if there's a change in behavior like that, a confusion mm-hmm. that, that that is persisting, that needs to be checked out. It's not just old mm-hmm. age, right? There's a reason for that, and we need to find out what that is. And sometimes that's a serious thing and needs to, needs to be taken to the ER so you guys can officially figure out what's going on. Correct, correct. So um, are there any other medicines that at this time – so if you if you intubate somebody, you're going to turn them over then to the ICU, and mm-hmm. and they're going to from that point you have done your job right successfully. Mm-hmm. You have saved their life, gotten them to ongoing management up in the hospital. And are there any other medicines that you might put them on now with COVID, or does that completely depend on the individual case? So are you talking if we intubate somebody because of COVID? Exactly. So somebody's COVID positive, you intubate them, they were having problems breathing. Are there any kind of standard protocols that you say, okay, we're going to put you on this and start this and transfer you up to the ICU? So down in the emergency room, mostly if somebody's requiring intubation, then our studies have shown to start them on steroids at that point. And then as far as any further treatment, we really rely on our ICU docs to take over and 
they've been the ones to make those decisions about further treatments and what medications to give the patient. Okay. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit again on you and let's move a little bit from COVID, I think. And what are the most common presenting needs for patients in your ERs now that you're treating? What are people coming in for? Maybe top three, top five. And is COVID on that list? So it really depends in the emergency room. It depends on the time of year. But I would say right now, as what happens all year round, number one is chest pain. Number two, abdominal pain. Number three, as you were alluding to earlier, altered mental status, which is usually an elderly, but not necessarily. Um, And that can be due to, especially with summer coming up, can be due to a lot of falls, which actually could happen also in the winter with a bunch of, unfortunately, people slipping on ice here in Indiana or... Mm -hmm. Snow. Hey, we even get um, some of that in Tennessee heads. too. <laughs> <laughs> getting brain bleeds, getting hip fractures, getting altered for a variety of reasons. Um, we see a lot of falls in general, I would say, but those are the top things that I would say bringing people to the ER. Gotcha. Consistently. So, so it's not, so COVID's really not one of your top three at this point in time in March 2021. Most people, it's kind of a little bit back to your normal. ER visits for chest pain, abdominal pain, falls, trauma, et cetera. Is that mm-hmm. okay? Well, that's, well, the problem is that a lot of COVID patients can have abdominal pain and nausea, vomiting, diarrhea associated with it too. So when I'm talking, I'm just talking about symptoms gotcha, in general. Gotcha. Okay. So. Okay. Makes sense. So um, when we call 911, emergency personnel are sent out to the house mm-hmm. for anything. Um, any of our listeners may not realize that there actually are different levels of training mm-hmm. for the people that may be sent out, correct? And mm-hmm. and how is this decided? So it really depends on your area. It depends on kind of your metropolis, where you live. Do you live in downtown urban? Do you live in a suburban or do you live in a rural area? And it depends on your EMS personnel at that time. Um, and who is closest to you, who can respond. It also depends on the type of call that is being, um, that is deemed necessary for 911. So if somebody is calling out for chest pain, then you're going to get whoever's the first responders in your area, which may be the fire department. Um, it may be EMTs, um, first responders. But you may also, but ultimately, a paramedic is going to end up being there and try to evaluate you, um, and then get you to the closest hospital. So, so what if I called and my daughter fell off her bike and looks like she broke her finger? Um, mm-hmm. Let's say for whatever reason, nine one one's called and they and somebody comes out, somebody is sent out. Mm-hmm. That would be less likely to have a full paramedic, right? for something like that? Absolutely. As long as she's breathing okay, there are no other serious signs of trauma, head Mm -hmm. trauma, anything that would potentially cause somebody to not to stop breathing or have any other serious illnesses that would require further medications Mm -hmm. or interventions, such as even a breathing tube um, out in the field. If they fell, just broke their arm, usually more of the EMTs can handle that and they will get to um, bring them to the hospital. So, so each of them, depending upon qualification, and I'm sure this may vary by state or by region or Mm -hmm. whatever, but, but not everybody that comes out as an emergency personnel can do everything, right? A paramedic is the top of the food chain. 
that's correct kind of especially in yep in the ems world that is they're the ones who um can get ivs can start um very strong medications mm-hmm. um can do life-saving measures um as far as put people on breathing machines they can shock your heart um i mean they can really do a variety of medical interventions that are deemed necessary necessary out in out at your home out even on the interstates it doesn't matter where you are um but then you also have emts fire department who have um, some bls training basic life support training too who are able to um provide care as well put you on oxygen some of them are able to start ivs um, do some basic intervention that can also save your life as well. So we should feel comfortable that the per, that the appropriate people are being sent out, but there's Absolutely. obviously a kind of a protocol for how it's being sent out, who's being sent out first, when it's being sent out, all of those type mm-hmm. of things. Correct? Who who mm-hmm. who does that? I mean, where who are who sets those protocols? How does that develop in a county or in a region? So it really depends. I mean, as far as who's being sent out, it depends on your 911 dispatcher. Okay. And then once you have your personal different EMS groups coming out or paramedics coming out, they have different protocols to follow. And that's um, actually collaborated with an EMS director who is a physician who works with them to set those protocols. So if the EMS director is the top of the food chain, um, that's kind of directing for an area what certain people collaboratively um, in discussions, what would we do in this situation? What do we do in that situation? What's going to give the patient the best outcome, but also not force somebody who just got basic life support to have to do something outside of their, that that would be dangerous to a patient, right? Correct. That's not in their scope of practice. Right, right. So very interesting. And we may talk more about that and the entire emergency response. I know you're going to be taking on some more responsibilities potentially in the future in there. So I'm, I'm very mm-hmm. interested in just, you know, outside and over and above COVID kind of how we, when needed, how we respond to people in the area, how we get them to the appropriate place and how we send the appropriate people. So let's get back to just emergency room medicine or emergency department medicine and COVID, which is what we started this on. What I hear from you in general is that things are are lightening up some. It's still a concern. Mm-hmm. You still test people for COVID very frequently uh, if they mm-hmm. have symptoms that suggest that. Uh, the, mm-hmm. For whatever reason, it could be vaccinations. It could be who knows what. Um, you know, I don't know that we're at herd mentality yet. But it, but for whatever reason, you're seeing fewer cases. Your hospitals over the last year have not been overrun. Uh, still on the list, but not not the top two or three things people are coming in for now. Life, in for now, life is getting back a little bit more to its routine in the emergency department, and mm-hmm. uh, and yet we're not out of the woods yet. We still have things to be concerned people shouldn't be flippant uh but things are looking brighter today than they were last march in 2020 absolutely any advice any thoughts about emergency medicine or covid that you would like to leave our listeners before we take off and end this session I think most importantly just for patients to know the emergency room is always there for you for life saving emergencies, but I will also reiterate the importance of having a primary care physician and having regular eye exams and having routine health care 
to help avoid you from even having to come to the emergency room in the first place. So that's always, I stress that to any of my patients coming to the emergency room. And as always, we're always here for you and we're always going to be there for you, even on your worst days or if you're scared enough for your life, that's where we come in. Um, but there's also a role to play for primary care physicians and um, the importance of having that routine care yearly to ensure that you are healthy and your family members are healthy as well. That is a great closing note. Primary health care is preventative and corrective, much like our primary. We are primary eye care providers that protect, correct, and enhance your eye health and your vision. And Dr. Kristen Kegaris, emergency room doctor in central Indiana, we appreciate you being on the front lines and protecting us and keeping people alive and just being there for us. Thanks, thanks for all that you do. And thanks for taking what are oftentimes very complicated subjects and just putting them in simple layman's terms that we all can understand. I really appreciate and value that ability you have to do that. So thanks a lot, Kristen. Absolutely. And always go Bucks. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> 